Hi listeners, welcome back to Motivate, the Motivation Inspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Dahi D, and today's guest is Dr. Jordan B. Peterson talking about increasing your motivation. I chose this clip because man oh man, do I go through periods in life where I'm just unmotivated. And maybe it's not that I'm just unmotivated. Maybe it's more of that I'm not motivated enough. And that's why I think clips like today's clip really illustrate how to keep the motivation going. Dr. Peterson points out one major thing that always stands out to me. Take care of yourself as though you are taking care of someone else. We always treat others better than how we treat ourselves. If you had a guest over in your home and they said they were thirsty, you would offer them water. However, if you just said out loud, I'm thirsty, there's not a guarantee that you would actually get up and go get yourself some water. The other point that Dr. Peterson points out is that having vision is absolutely crucial to being successful and staying motivated. After all, you need goals, you need plans, and you need to have vision to move in that right direction. That's it for me today. Thank you all for listening. I hope you truly enjoyed today's episode. I've been interested in how to increase people's motivation for a long time, you know, and um, and there's a nice literature on that. And, and part of it was as was created by uh, Latham and Locke, uh, Gary Latham and Edwin Locke. And they're looking at goal setting. That's how, how they described it as a means to improve business productivity. And so what they imagine that you have two teams and you get them to set goals, say, and one team sets goals for their corporate productivity and another team sets goals for their life. And then you match them head to head over some period of time and see which one comes ahead. And what happens is that the people who set goals for their life beat the people who set goals for the company. And so that's really, and, and then there's a variety of other literatures that support that kind of hypothesis. But it's, it's, it's very, very worthwhile thinking that through because what you want, if your company is structured properly, you want people in it who have a life. Right, So they're aiming at things that they think are valuable because they're just not going to be motivated, period, unless they're aiming at things they think are valuable. And then you want their loyalty to the company to be nested inside that. So they have to see that working there, no matter what it is that they're doing, and, and you know, often jobs are repetitive and dull and difficult and, and challenging and all of that, or you wouldn't be paid to do them, right? They're not all fun and games. Um, but if you can see that the less intrinsically interesting things that you're required to do are related in some directly intelligible way to goals that you regard as valuable, then that tags those activities with this dopaminergic kick that we were talking about earlier. So you need this hierarchy of values, right? Just like, here's what I'm doing with my life. Here's why my job is important to that. Or maybe it isn't, and then you have to quit and go find a new job, but that's fine. But, you know, because you might discover that too. And so we started... Um, trying to formalize this <clears throat> when <clears throat> at the same time that I also realized something that I've never recovered from realizing, I think. So I teach students usually for this class, it was third and fourth year students. And so this is at the University of Toronto. They're pretty smart kids. It's a hard university to get into and they're pretty disciplined and they're actually quite conservative, all things considered. And uh, I was teaching them about stories and about the fact that our life is a story with a goal and a purpose and, and a beginning point. And, and um, I was encouraging them to develop their own stories. So I had them write an autobiography, and they really got into that. That was quite amazing. 
to identify, you know, to break their life into epochs and then to describe the important episodes in each epoch, uh, both positive and negative, and what they might do to reduce the possibility of the negative in the future and to capitalize on the positive, um, which is the purpose of memory, by the way, and then also to write a plan for the future. And so we, we formalized that. So the plan is, okay, first of all, you have to get yourself in the right mindset. And the mindset is you're trying to take care of yourself like you would care for someone that you cared for. That's a hard mindset to get into because people like their pets better than they like themselves often. <clears throat> and then you have to have a vision. And so the vision would be, well, okay, three to five years down the road, if your friendship networks were configured properly, what would that look like? If you were pursuing the career that would be appropriate for you and sustaining for you, what would that look like? How are you going to educate yourself? How are you going to take care of yourself mentally and physically? What do you want for an intimate relationship? And how are you going to handle temptations like alcohol and drug abuse? Because they take people down pretty frequently. So all you have to do is think about, okay, what could that be like if you had what you needed? Not some wild fantasy, but, but realistic in what you needed. So that's the first part. And then Okay, now write for 20 minutes about what your life could be like three to five years down the road if all of this came together. And then now do the opposite. So imagine all your weaknesses and all the ways that you can go down the wrong path. And then imagine that gets the upper hand. Then imagine where you are in three to five years. So then you get a polarity. eh? It's like not this and this and yes this. So you can run away from the things you don't want. And you can run towards the things you do want. That gets your anxiety behind you instead of in front of you, right? Because maybe you're going to go do something difficult and you're afraid of it. And then you think, well, if I don't do this, I'm going to end up there. It's like, oh, okay, that's so terrible that this little terrible is nothing. So, and then in the next part of the exercise, you turn that into an implementable plan, you know, and you write about why your life would be better and why your family's life would be better and why your community's life would be better. So it's like fully articulated. And we've tested about 10,000 university students with that now in three different locales and we've increased the probability that they'll stay in university by about 30 percent and raised their grade point average about the same and it's worked best for men who are most who were doing the least well so in Holland those were non-western ethnic minority men and they improved their performance enough to actually slightly exceed the Dutch national women who were at the top otherwise over two years. Yeah, it was unbelievable. It just blew us away. A psychological intervention to cure what's in hypothetically a sociological problem. And so, and so that, that's a good example of how... And it, it, what, what blew me away when I was first considering this is I had all these students, 21 years old, and I realized that no one had ever sat them down, not even once in their entire career in education and said, okay, who do you want to be? Like, what sort of person is it that you want to be? Not, not job. It's like character. What do you want your life to be like? What should it be like? And what shouldn't it be like? And, like, write about that seriously, like your life depends on it, because it does. And, and then I thought, well, that's so weird. Why in the world isn't our education system set up to help people with that? Because it's like, that's kind of obvious, you know? It's like, what are you doing and why? And then I did some reading partly from John Gatto, who's done some interesting work looking at the history of the education system. And it was a derivation of the Prussian 
education system back in the late 1800s, and it was designed to produce obedient, obedient, well, it was partly soldiers, but it was partly workers. Oh, I was going to say it definitely was soldiers because yeah. that, that was the transition when they t- they had the transition take place at that time as well, where they moved away from centralized command after they got beat by Napoleon. And it, it, they never they, they were constantly trying to fight towards that direction where the soldiers would not just be obedient because they realized that that is not what they actually wanted. They t- they finally started to do at the end of World War One. And, and if they would have done it earlier, it might have turned the tide of the war. But that was what, you know, that's what World War II, the Blitzkrieg and, and total decentralized command and elements just going out and making things happen and finding gaps in the defenses and attacking them as opposed to you're just going to wait until you're told what to do. Right. And that was the, the German way and decentralized command. So right. It yeah, was, well, well, competence beats obedience, <laughs> right? So you unite people under a goal. And then you let them act autonomously. You got to get them. You got to not sell them the goal. That's not right. You know what you have to do is you have to go in and talk to them and discover what the goal is of the enterprise and what it is that fires people up. And that really does work. You know, and the idea that capitalism is essentially crooked and it's the people who are who are pulling the wool over other people's eyes who win is like, well, you know, now and then there's a criminal action. And the person gets away with it, so to speak, although people get away with a lot less than they think. But most of the time within a functional company, you better have your people on board or they will do exactly what you said they'll do. They'll spend 80% of their time sabotaging the company. Yeah, and I, I, uh, again, something I learned working with the corporate world, and it was working with the corporate world where I reflected on what I did and and was talking to a, a a business leader at some point and I said, well, you know, your people got to understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so then he, you know, absorbs that and says, okay, that makes sense. And so then he gets up in front of his team and he says, you know, well, the reason why we're doing this is we want to improve our profitability as a company. And, you know, he sat down and we talked afterwards and he said, did I, did I do a good job? Because now they understand. And I said, oh, no, actually, you missed it. And then I started explaining to them better because I learned that what you have to explain, there has to be a thread of why that goes all the way through the corporate reason. But that why has to come back down to the individual contributor. Exactly. So they realize that when when we do better as a company, when we're more profitable as a company, we can put more money in our, in marketing and we can produce stuff cheaper because we'll do it on a more mass scale. Then we can lower prices and then we can actually hire more people and that's going to make you move up in this command here and you're going to make more money. We're going to sell more stuff and you're going to get a bigger bonus. So you doing this, the reason why you're doing it is because then you can achieve those life yes, goals because exactly. you want to buy that house and that car and send your kid to school. So there's a big difference you need to make sure that the people understand why they're doing it, not for the corporate reason, not for the mission reason, but for, for why it's going to help them. The huh. exact same thing you huh. just said. Yeah, of course, well, I, it's also really helpful, too, if you, you know, your corporation has, I hate to use the word vision because that's you know, turned into a buzzword, but you know, it's often that you're working in a company where worthwhile things are happening, exciting and worthwhile things, you know, and you're, you're, you're trying to, well, make something better at a lower price, let's say, and... So there's the, the, the heroism, let's say, of producing a product that's going to have a positive impact on the world. And you need to know how your small actions are tied with that greater goal. And then there's the financial self-interest as well. And, and the thing is, if you, don't, if you can't tell your workers that story, 
then either your company is fundamentally corrupt because that isn't the true story. It's like you're actually working so that I can rape and pillage the company over the next four years and take all the value out of it and run because, you know, CEOs do that from time to time. Yes. Or you don't understand how the company works and you can't tell the story, which means you're basically incompetent. Mm -hmm. So, but, well, people are not wired up so that they will work without knowing why unless you beat them. Yeah. And then if you beat them, you don't don't be thinking that that's victory. 